This is VLX number 102 on this rock. This is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina, the online patristic Bible study and free guide to Ignatian mental prayer. God give you his peace and omni patris affidit spiritu santi. Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, before we get started, I want to point out that Father Lapide wrote today's commentary around 1600, the year 1600, just after the breakout of Protestantism in the previous century. And remember, the schism of the Orthodox took place about 600 years prior. That also rejected the papacy, but not as intensely as the Protestant revolt. Why do I mention the papacy? Well, today we're going to talk a lot about the Pope, a lot about the papacy, at least historically. Not going to talk about current events, but we are going to look at the traditional view of the papacy because it all hinges on today's section, Matthew 16, as you probably know. The words of Father Lapide in the year 1600 might seem to be ultramontanist to some listeners. We're going to talk about that term in a minute. You know, since the Protestant revolt, the term ultramontanist was kind of an insult, first of Protestants against Catholics and then later of liberal Europeans against all Catholics who were faithful. And then, of course, unfortunately, since Vatican II, and especially in the last five years, many Catholic traditionalists now say they are not ultramontanists. Kind of weird to come from traditionalists, and they're just saying they they basically don't want to put the Pope ahead of the Church and her tradition. I get that, but here's the thing that a lot of traditionalists right now are forgetting. Ultramontanist is not a bad word. In happier days, like, say, before 1950, I think any Catholic listening to this podcast, if it had existed, or choosing to listen to something like this, they would have called themselves an ultramontanist. Okay, now we're at the point of defining it. What is an ultramontanist? The Catholic Encyclopedia defines an ultramontanist simply as one who recognizes the spiritual head of the Catholic Church is the Pope. So honestly, that would have been all of my great-grandparents from Ireland, of course. The problem nowadays is that many traditionalists think it's a bad word because, well, they forget the third secret of Fatim was probably a prophecy of apostasy from apostasy from the top down. But in happier days, like before Fatima in 1917, an ultramontanist was just a Catholic who recognizes the spiritual head of the Catholic Church as the Pope, which was basically every Catholic, including Father Lapide. So keep in mind, what he writes today in the year 1600, that was before Our Lady of La Salette said that Rome would lose the faith and become the seat of the Antichrist. Not my words, that's the words of Our Lady. So that changes some things 
but I think we can say all of us in happier days would have been ultramontanists. So let's jump into Matthew 16, 13 forward today. First few words here is, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now the geography of this location is important. Father Lapide writes, Caesarea Philippi must be distinguished from the Caesarea between Dor and Joppa, which is called in the Acts of the Apostles, Caesarea of Palestine. It was the boundary of Canaan, as promised by God to the Israelites towards the north, as Beersheba was its boundary on the south. Many of the neighboring Gentiles flocked to this city. Therefore, Christ retired to it upon this occasion that he might teach the Gentiles as well as the Jews and that he might speak with more freedom about the Messiah. For in Judea, it was perilous to speak upon this subject, since the scribes were ready to accuse him to the Roman governors of aiming at royal power and of treason against Caesar. Again, this city, Caesarea Philippi, had been the seat of idolatry, as we see in Judges 18.29. Christ, therefore, wished to cleanse it from this stain and to bring it to the worship of God, yes, to be the beginning and the matrix of Gentile Christian nations. And the next line, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay, now remember, this answer from the apostles, this is not due to some weird idea of reincarnation, but rather the resurrection of the body. Some people thought that John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah had already been raised up by God himself. You know, this is a lot just like what we Catholics believe, how Elijah and Elisha will come at the end of time before Christ's second coming. Father Lapide supports this. He says, They thought one of the prophets had risen again, and Jesus was him, as though Jesus were really John the Baptist or Elias or Jeremiah, for the Pharisees and the Jews generally believed in the resurrection of the dead. Okay, the next line. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? St. John Chrysostom writes, The Lord, by his second question, admonishes his disciples to think more loftily concerning him. By the very manner of his interrogation, he shows that those common opinions fell far short of his dignity. You, he says, who have been always with me, and who yourselves have done so many miracles in my name, whom do you say that I am? Okay, now there's going to be a lot of Trinitarian theology here, so let's listen at length to Father Lapide, who again shows us the clearest view of the Church Fathers, who, again remember, were the closest friends and students of the Apostles. Okay, so the first quote from Father Lapide we'll consider is his treatise on those three words, Son of God. Father Lapide says these terms in reference to Christ were not by grace and adoption, as all the saints are sons of God, but by nature and the deity communicated to him by God the Father, that is, by eternal generation. Wherefore, says Father Lapide, the Greek has the definite article hohuios, that is, the Son, that is, the only natural Son of one substance with the Father. Now let's ask, was Peter the first to recognize Christ as the Son of God? There's some disagreement among the fathers, as Father Lapide points out, quote, Saints Hilary and Chrysostom and others are of the opinion that St. Peter, first of all men, confessed the divinity of Christ. Others deny this, saying that Nathaniel confessed it before Peter when he said in John's Gospel, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, 
thou art the king of Israel. Nevertheless, it is plain that before this confession of Peter, the apostles acknowledged Christ to be God from his very words. Father Lapide then writes, The apostles, inasmuch as they were uninstructed, had formed a very confused and poor conception of this doctrine, and believed, after a sort, that Christ was truly the Son of God above other prophets, yes, that he was God. But after what manner this was so, whether by eternal generation or by some other way, they were ignorant. But Peter, being enlightened by God, recognized it distinctly, clearly, and sublimely, and first being asked concerning this thing, openly and constantly confessed the same, and testified in this place that verily Christ was peculiarly the Son of God, that is, begotten of God the Father by eternal generation, and therefore consubstantial with him, and the very and eternal God. Christ required this faith concerning himself from Peter and the apostles, for the apostles tacitly approved Peter's confession. So now here's where we get into the primacy of Peter quite a bit here. The Synod of Ephesus, Acts 3, says, Thrice most blessed and worthy of all praise is the Apostle Peter, who is the rock and the base of the Catholic Church and the foundation of the true faith. St. Jerome wrote, what, faith, what flesh and blood could not reveal has been revealed by the grace of the Holy Ghost. Pope St. Leo writes, And I say unto thee, that even as my Father hath made known to thee my excellency, so do I also make known to thee that thou art Peter, that is, inasmuch as I am the inviolable rock, so likewise thou art a rock, because thou art strengthened by my strength, and the things which are mine by my own power, are thine by participation with me. Okay, let's telescope out and just look at the Bible again. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 16 in today's VLX. Christ said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So let's ask, why is today's section so important to understand the foundations of the church? Well, first we have to remember that Peter is mentioned 162 times in the New Testament, and that is more than all the other apostles combined. So today's section shows that, yes, all apostles are important, but Peter was their leader and spokesman. This is obviously extremely important when we Catholics debate apostolic succession with the Protestants and or primacy of place with Russian Orthodox and Greek Orthodox. Of course, always remember the Russian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox, they do have valid sacraments, but they are not in union with the successor Peter since the year 1054-1055. So, today's section is really important to see what Christ himself thought of Peter and the papacy and apostolic succession and why Peter was first among the apostles. Father Lapide adds, Peter's answer was as though Christ confirmed it and said, Thou hast spoken truly, O Peter, that I am the Son of God. For as thou art the son of Jonah, a man from man according to natural generation, so am I the Son of the Father, but begotten of him from eternity, God of God, of one substance, and Godhead with him. Do you all catch that? 
it's important that he just called Peter the son of Jonah because this showed that Peter was a man from natural generation and Christ is linking, at least by word analogy, to the fact that he is begotten outside of time. P- Peter is begotten inside of time, but Christ is eternally begotten of the Father and of one substance and Godhead with the Father. Okay, now let's look at this question. What does it mean to say that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church? You know, the most famous of all the Eastern saints before the schism, that was St. John Chrysostom. He's in, he was in modern-day Turkey at the Hagia Sophia that is still there. After he left, several hundred years later, it was turned into a mosque, and then later the Hagia Sophia was turned into a museum. But St. John Chrysostom had that as the seat of the most important Eastern church, Constantinople, now called Istanbul. Well, St. John Chrysostom, who's um, kind of the spokesman for the Eastern churches, including the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox, uh, or at least one of their greatest saints, he himself, without a doubt, gives primacy of place to Peter above all the other apostles. So, did St. John Chrysostom, did he see the rock, that term the rock, as the confession of the faith of Peter, or as Peter himself? The answer is both. St. John Chrysostom says, It is upon Peter's confession of Christ as the true Son of God that the church is immovably built. But, St. John Chrysostom also says he, Peter, was made the foundation of the church. That's homily number three on Matthew 5, volume 7. Peter was made the foundation of the church. That is from an Eastern saint, St. John Chrysostom. Now, Protestants say the rock of foundation was not Peter, but rather Peter's confession of faith. People like Scott Hahn have done a lot of work answering those Protestants on a lot of linguistic, on the Protestants' linguistic tricks, but it's nice to see Father Lapide saying the same thing as Scott Hahn and other Catholic apologists, so I'm going to quote Lapide here on this whole debate that Protestants often often bring to us on this Petra versus Petrus and this whole Kepha debate on the Catholic versus Protestant apologetics debate on the importance of the papacy. So listen here. Father Lapide writes, the meaning then is this, thou art Kepha, he's looking at the original language, or Kephas, that is a rock or a very hard and very firm stone, for this is the signification of the Hebrew Kef and of the Chaldean and Syriac Kepha, marked out and ordained by me, that is Christ speaking that, that after my death and the gift of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost, having been entirely solidified and made strong, thou mayest, This is Father Lapide pretending like he's Christ to Peter. You may become the foundation of the church, which I will build upon thee. For before the coming of the Holy Ghost, Peter was very far from being the rock of the church. Yes, through fear he denied Christ in his passion. So then the word Peter and Petra denotes the firmness of St. Peter as a prince of the church and of his successors, the pontiffs, and their constancy in the faith and religion of Christ. Father Lapide then adds, You may say, Christ said not thou art Petra, but thou art Petrus. Again, Father Lapide is naming the same argument Protestants bring us today on the language. And he points out that they deny that the pronoun refers to Peter. I answer, the Christ is said to have spoken in Aramaic, Thou art Kepha, and upon this Kepha I will build. For Kepha means a rock, and hence Peter in Aramaic was called Kepha. But the Greek translator who is followed by the Latin, gave the masculine form of the noun, 
namely Petrus rather than Petra, which is feminine, but Petros and Petra in Greek equally signify a rock or a stone. Okay, all that is to say, if that confused you, don't worry. All that is to say that in the original language, there is no difference that all the Protestants try to make between these two words. It's clear Christ is referring to Peter as the rock and the rock upon which he builds the faith if you look at what the Aramaic would have been. But still we have to ask, uh, is all of this to say that the rock upon which Christ founded his church was Peter himself? I mean, really, doesn't it say later in the Bible, Jesus himself is the rock? Well, St. Augustine has a beautiful answer for this. Quote, Lastly, for strengthening the devotion of the churches, he is called the rock, as says the Lord. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. For he is called the rock because he first laid the foundations of the faith for the nations, and like an immovable rock he holds the joints and superstructure of the entire Christian edifice. St. Peter, then, is called a rock on account of devotion, and the Lord is called a rock on account of strength. As saith the Apostle, they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. End quote. Okay, and then Pope St. Leo the Great introduces Christ as speaking like this to Peter, quote, Since I am the rock, I the cornerstone, who make of both one, I the foundation, besides which no one can lay any other, nevertheless, you are a rock likewise, because you are strengthened by my strength, in order that what things are mine by mine own power may be yours also through participation with me. And upon this rock I will build my church. Upon this strength, he says, I will construct an eternal temple. Now, does this mean St. Peter is the foundation of the church and the other apostles are not? Father Lapide answers, You may say all the apostles are the foundations of the church, as is plain from Ephesians 2.20, and Apocalypse 2021, 20, so then Peter only is not the rock of the church. I answer that Peter is the rock and the foundation of the whole church and of the entire body of the faithful, and therefore of the apostles themselves. For the office of Peter, who is primate and chief, was to retain, direct, and strengthen the apostles in faith, religion, and duty, and if at any time they should err, to correct them. Can I remember a little bit earlier I said that the Catholic Encyclopedia defined an ultramontanist as one who recognizes the spiritual head of the Catholic Church as the Pope. That's probably all of you, most of you. I know there's some good evangelicals listening, maybe some Orthodox too, but that's most of you. So remember, ultramontanist in happier days was not a bad word. We should all be ultramontanists after hearing the words of the Church Fathers, at least we would be 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Uh, because it's not bad to put a hyper-emphasis on the papacy, at least when they defended the faith. Again, I don't think we're going to fully understand where we are in the church until we understand the third secret and Our Lady of La Soulette, who prophesied in relatively recent history, by the way, that Rome would lose the faith and become the seat of the Antichrist. Again, Our Lady's words, not mine. But of course, this doesn't mean we leave the traditional faith at all. It is all the more reason we have to hunker down and hold to the old-school notion of an ultramontanist papacy that defended the Catholic faith. Now, how about this term, the keys of the kingdom? You might remember Dr. Scott Hahn writes about Isaiah 22 on this, but so does Father Lapide. Father Lapide writes, quote, There is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 22, where God, promising the principality of the synagogue to Eliakim, the pontiff of the Old Testament, says, and I will lay upon his shoulder the key of the house of David, 
So he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Moreover, Eliakim was a type of Christ as a priest, of whom it was said in Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. End quote. Okay, and then Father Lapide adds, The sense, then, is this, I, Christ, will give to thee, Peter, as a pontiff, and consequently to all the other popes who come after thee, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, by which I mean supreme authority to rule the universal church dispersed throughout the whole world, that by the keys, that is, by thy power in opening or shutting the church to men. Then St. John Chrysostom in Homily 55 teaches that by the delivery of these keys by Christ to Peter, there was committed to him the care and government of the whole world. Okay, notice again, this is an Eastern saint talking about the Western seat of Rome. The whole world. This is clearly more than just this idea of primacy of place or even first among equals between East and West. Again, St. John Chrysostom. The, by delivery of these keys by Christ to Peter, there was committed to him the care and government of the whole world. Okay, and then how about this line, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Lapide writes, The pontiff binds and looses not only men, but sins and vows and oaths. There is a transition from the metaphor of the keys to the kindred metaphor of binding and loosing, for to open and shut, to bind and loose are akin. And again, there's a reference back to Isaiah 22, though. 22 there. And let me add real quick that the Greek for bind and loose, when I read it, kind of puts into my mind this image of tying a shoe or a knot in a rope and then untying a shoe or undoing a knot in a, ro- in a rope. That's kind of the picture I get when I read the Greek. Bind and loose, tie and untie. Okay, and then Father Lapide continues, quote, The power, therefore, of binding is a very ample one and, and is exercised by Peter and the pontiffs in various ways. First, by not absolving but retaining sins and offenses, and by refusing sacramental absolution in the sacrament of penance to such as are unworthy and without the proper dispositions, so likewise by refusing the Eucharist and other sacraments, as seen in St. John chapter 20, verse 23. Secondly, by enjoining penance to the lapsed. Third, by binding such as are guilty with excommunication and other ecclesiastical censures. Fourth, by enjoining laws and precepts with respect to fasts, feasts, tithes, and upon the faithful. Fifth, by binding Christians with definitions of faith when the pontiff ex cathedra defines and declares what is to be believed, what is to be rejected as erroneous and heretical, what monastic orders are good and what are not. The pontiffs, nevertheless, give a share of this power as they think good to bishops and pastors and other ministers of the church subordinate to them. And therefore Christ said to the other apostles in Matthew 18.18, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, end quote. Okay, and then finally we're going to close with Matthew 16.20. That's the last verse of today's VLX. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And then the obvious question we have to ask is, well, why would we hear this burst of faith from Peter and a confirmation from Christ, and then... He just puts a cap on their evangelization of him, Christ, as both Messiah and God. Why would he do that? 
Okay, last quote from Father Lapide, who answers this. All men knew that he was called Jesus, but they did not know that he was Messiah or Christ, the true Son of God. Christ did not wish the apostles to preach this doctrine to others yet, I add, for two reasons. First, because they themselves were not as yet sufficiently instructed and confirmed in it. Secondly, because Christ was about to be put to death by the Jews. Please say an Our Father for me. Et benedictio Deum nepotentis Patris, Sefiri, et Spiritus Sancti, descendet super vos, et maniet semper. Amen. <laughs>